Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. This is Chris Chimes along with Ben Baldanza, and we're glad you've joined us. Hey, Ben, how's it going up in Washington? All good, Chris. I moved all my clocks ahead for daylight savings time, and I'm thinking about spring like I think all of our listeners are doing. Give us an update on the airline news and we can get the show going. You got it. We start with, of course, the big news that Congress finalized and enacted and President Biden signed round three of COVID economic relief. Included in the legislation is $3 billion to help aerospace companies recall workers, $8 billion of support to airports, and $15 billion for airline worker payroll protection through September. As a result of this, United and American announced that they were canceling their furlough notices that had been sent out to more than 27,000 employees. And then, of course, related to all this, President Biden said in a national address that the vaccine would be widely available to all adults by May 1st and with the goal of small group gatherings by July 4th. But Ben, on top of all this, and very much related, is the CDC not updating its guidance on travel. The agency still discourages everything but essential travel, and the CDC also indicates they won't update that position until more people are vaccinated. And I'm sure that they're also closely watching infection numbers with spring break travel underway and mask and venue restrictions getting lifted. So, Ben, I've got a two-part question related to the news of the week. First, the U.S. airline industry has been the recipient of significant financial support by U.S. taxpayers. So what should executives and also labor be thinking about with regard to the responsibilities that go along with that support? Well, that's an excellent question, Chris. You know, this support in all three cases did have some formal strings attached around limits on executive pay, companies can't do any share buybacks during this time, and all sort of reasonable things to say, hey, look, if we're going to use taxpayers to help you stay in business and help you pay your people, you can't do things that, you know, that are just politically sort of uncomfortable around those things. And that makes a lot of sense. There were specific loans in the first one, the airlines that took those loans, of course, I think they're, what they have to think about is repaying those loans as quickly as possible and getting the taxpayers their money back for the piece that were loans. The piece that were grants, I think what they have to do is think about, you know, keeping employment up, not looking for ways to get rid of people, but thinking of ways to keep people employed. If people are being paid by taxpayers, right now, at least through September, to be there, then they should be productive in some ways. And so that means airlines should put more planes in the air. More planes in the air is going to mean lower prices, of course, but that's good for consumers. So right now, airlines are in a position where they're in this quasi state of we're private companies, so we have to make money, but we're getting all this public money. So for that, I think they have the responsibility to say, let's get the economy going. Airlines, I've always believed, are an important piece of the underlying economy. People and goods need to move for an economy to work. 
So it's the airline's responsibility now, and I think it's the management of airlines' responsibility now to say, we've gotten this support. It's our job now to do what we can to get the country moving. Get the planes in the air, fly to where people are going, keep people employed, and be ready for what hopefully could be a good summer for travel if, in fact, the whole country is vaccinated by you know May or June. So is there like a psychological or moral lid on fares for this time? Or, for example, the airports have got a nice chunk of money. There's an infrastructure bill that is now next in the shoot for the Biden administration and Congress. I mean, can they reasonably make an effort at uh, increasing the PFC, for example, during this time? Well, that's that's a real interesting point. You know, the PFCs or passenger facility charges, as our listeners, I'm sure, know who that means. Right now in the U.S. are capped at $4.50 per passenger per flight segment. So if you're connecting, you could pay that fee twice if if the airline you're connecting through has that PFC. And interestingly, 100 of the 100 largest airports in the United States charge a PFC. Right, So it's a popular, while it's not mandatory that airports do it, it's a very popular way to finance airports. Airport operators argue that if they didn't have the PFC, airlines would have to pay higher charges for landing and gate rentals and things. So they'll get it one way or the other. And one way is have the customers pay it through the PFC. The other is to have the airlines pay it indirectly through customer ticket prices. And so... I think that there might be pressure to increase that cap. Most of the airlines that charge the PFC or airports, I mean, that charge the PFC are already charging the 450. So the only way for them to get more is to raise the cap, maybe to $6, $7. I don't know. In Canada, those charges are $30 and $40. I would hate to see the U.S. go that way because it would mean basically the end of low fares if you had to add $40 to all your tickets just to fund the airport. And that's the case in some Canadian airports. So I'm not a fan of this kind of financing. I think airports Airports can, you know, they can float bonds, they can price, including their runways and their gates and things to market rates. And if they got to raise those rates a little, that'll determine who flies to that airport and who doesn't. But I think it's too easy for the airports to just say, add it to the ticket prices. So I'm not really a fan of PFC. So I hope that that's not going to be one of the things they do. In fact, I think with the money that is coming out of this enormous bill, I hope it's giving airports enough money they think we don't need to sort of put more pressure on consumer prices right now. We've got travel coming back. We've got this new money from the bill. So let's keep fares as as controlled as we can. I don't think that there's a moral sense that fares are going to have to stay really low, but I think the economic reality is they will stay low because capacity is always ahead of demand when there are planes on the ground and coming back. And when there's a lot of seats, that's going to keep the prices low for a while. Okay. Then part two of this discussion with the CDC's guidance that discourages non-essential travel. First, it doesn't seem like the public is responding all that well. Uh, last Friday, TSA screened almost 1.4 million passengers, which was the highest number since March 15th of last year. Lots of reports of crowded spring break destinations like Florida beaches and Western ski resorts. So how does the industry balance the need to continue to claw back its operations and its market while the CDC puts out discouraging messages? 
Well, I think this was a discouraging message. And to be honest, Chris, I thought it was a little inconsistent with the rest of their message around vaccinated people. Now, this messaging was specifically in a guidance around if you're fully vaccinated, here's how you can think of things now. And they were fairly encouraging around, you know, you could meet with other fully vaccinated people without masks. You could meet even with one other family that was unvaccinated if they show no symptoms and have little risk for yourself. But then they said, but we still discourage domestic and international travel. And that seems so odd to me because the travel itself, Chris, has shown no reason to think that that propagates the virus, right? There haven't been transmissions on board the airplane. There's been millions of things written about the air and the planes and how safe being on the plane is. Certainly being in your car, there's the dangers of being in the moving vehicle, but COVID-wise, there's not a specific risk of being in your car. And they didn't point out no airline travel. They just said no travel. So if you read their guidance literally, It says, if I'm fully vaccinated and you're fully vaccinated, Chris, and we live an hour apart, I shouldn't drive to see you, right? Right. Even though we're both vaccinated, but we're not supposed to travel, right? Right. And so that, that just seems odd to me. It's almost like they're conflating travel itself with bad behaviors. Somehow, if I get on an airplane or if I drive my car a long distance, I'm going to forget to wash my hands, or I'm going to forget to wear a mask, or I'm going to all of a sudden want to jump in a big gathering of people, you know, and be foolish. And that's kind of weird, right? You can travel and be safe in the travel itself. And when you get off the plane or get out of the car, be just as safe as before you got on the plane or on the car. So the why they've sort of highlighted this one act of movement being on a plane or being in a car or traveling as something you shouldn't do just seemed odd to me and it seemed kind of inconsistent with the rest of the guidance, to be honest. I'm wondering if there were more political motivations, not that would come from the CDC. I'm a fan of the CDC in general, and I think their guidance has generally helped this country move forward with this virus. But in this particular case, I think it's uh, it was a setback for the whole travel industry and maybe a needless setback, I think. Yeah, I mean, they I have to walk carefully here, but obviously they're focusing more on the behavior, like you said, than the activity of travel. So perhaps if they can, you know, they're seeing people frolicking on the beaches. And so if they can somehow prohibit people from getting to the beaches, then maybe those things won't happen, but they're going to happen anyway. Certainly, you know, in the cruise business where I sit now, I mean, our guests heard the July 4th goal by President Biden and right away were like, will cruises be back by July 4th? So <laughs> there, there's some dates out there. And I think it's good to have some dates and some goals because everyone can work towards them and it gives people a light to move towards. I think we have to be careful. I don't think the CDC takes well to public criticism. That's, you know, the, the travel industry isn't their purpose. Their purpose is protecting public health. And I think the industry needs to be working very hard and labor very hard to kind of build a coalition that can work more closely with the CDC. And I'm just not sure kind of public debates are going to move things as much as private political pressure and 
those kinds of conversations. So I know Americans Allied Pilots Association members put out a very pointed statement and I get their point. They kind of said, well, they didn't kind of say, they said, it doesn't make sense for Congress to appropriate all this money to the airlines and then not allow the American public to travel. And you're right. And as you pointed, it doesn't make sense, but there might be some people at the CDC who think, well, you're right, it doesn't make sense. And we didn't support that money. So it's really a, a difficult box we're all sitting in. I do think private channels are going to be more effective. And I do think the agency is going to be closely watching what's happening over the next few weeks with regard to, again, all this leisure travel, the mask and venue restrictions being lifted. And they're waiting to see if if the public behaves responsibly, whatever that means, before they're ready to do anything on on travel bans or discouragements or whatever whatever verb you want to use. Well, I think that's all right, Chris. And I'll use a an airline analogy here, an airplane analogy. When I was learning to fly private airplanes, when I first got my private pilot license, my flight instructor you know, congratulated me. And he said, but remember, Ben, every time you get an aviation license, you get a pat on the back and a kick in the butt. <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning you get, you know, great job, you're here, but there's so much more you need to do, right? right. <laughs> and uh, in a way, that's how I see this sort of between the White House and the CDC. They want to be optimistic. They want to say you can do more, but then they want to say, but you have to hold back too. And that's confusing. I personally was confused at the president's speech when he talked about small gatherings on July 4th to say everyone who wants a vaccine by May 1st can have it. And then two months later, June, July, you can still only meet with a couple of people on July 4th. That that seemed weird to me. I understand the conservatism of it. I understand not wanting to go out too fast, too quickly. But two months after everyone who wants a vaccine has it, why couldn't you have a lot of people over for 4th of right. July, right? That's right. my view. It's like, that's far enough. But I, I get, you're right about this really tough situation of wanting to be optimistic, but wanting to be careful too. And in the specific case of the CDC guidance, I'm disappointed that they didn't say something like, and now if you travel, please be sure to follow all the safe rules you've been following, something like that. I think that would have been more helpful to the industry. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. So to your earlier point about getting ready for spring, we're going to switch gears a bit on the news and... um, point out we're seeing some signs of spring and renewal in the airline business, specifically both the Frontier and Sun Country IPOs that were launched last week. And then David Nealman's latest airline iteration, Breeze Airways, got DOT approval to start flying what Nealman promises to be, quote, the world's nicest airline. I don't know if that's nice in people or nice in amenities or maybe nice in both. <laughs> so, out of crisis, there's always opportunity. But how are you feeling about the prospects for these IPOs and the Breeze startup? Well, I think it's real interesting. You know, if you had told people that there are a bunch of planes still sitting on the ground and we need government money to keep all the airline employees employed and big airlines are hocking their frequent flyer programs to, to borrow lots of money, perfect time to invest in new airlines, right? <laughs> <laughs> It just seems so strange. And yet what I think this really does, Chris, is I think it shows the strength of lower cost airlines. 
the airlines who have lower costs and don't cater specifically to business travel are much more aggressive in this time frame. You've seen Southwest add service to new airports. We've talked about that already. Also this week, you saw Spirit Airlines announce some new flying from LaGuardia to LA and San Juan on Saturdays when there's no perimeter rule at the airport. And you just see growth and aggression by low fare carriers more in this space because they know they're going to get to cash break even much sooner if they're not already there because their costs are lower. If business travel doesn't all come back, that's not really a hurt to them because they never carried that traffic in the first place. They have no wide body airplanes. And so they're not sort of burdened by this risk of what if long haul traffic doesn't come off and what these high fixed costs of wide bodies dragging us down. They have none of that. So when you look at the airlines you talked about here, Frontier and Sun Country, both very low cost airlines, single fleet types, all you know domestic or near international and really low cost, run well. And Breeze is going to be a brand new airplane, the A220, that's super efficient, largely domestic, right? As David Nealman has talked about it, flying new routes that haven't been flown before. We'll see if that model works, but he's got a great track record. And so I think what this shows is there is opportunity out of these kind of tough things. And the specific opportunity of the airline world is seen right now is that people are seeing the strength and the resiliency of the low cost business model. That's what investors are willing to invest in right now, because they see those are the companies that have been able to be more aggressive and get through this sort of issue more quickly and with less collateral damage. So if I gave Ben 10,000 bucks, what which one of these three horses would you put it on? <laughs> I can only put it on one horse? Just one. Just only, one, one can, only one can win. Only one can win. I'd probably say Frontier. And the reason I say Frontier is the CEO is a good friend of mine, and I think he's very good at what he does. The owner is the owner who used to own Spirit when I was running Spirit. And I know he knows what it takes to make a good airline run and run a good IPO. So while I like the Sun Country management and the owners, and I would never want to bet against David Nealman because he's got a great track record, I think Frontier has sort of the strongest case for why they should do very well coming out of an IPO. Fair enough. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear, touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. You're listening to Airlines Confidential. Chris, we've gotten some great feedback from listeners about our segment with Bob Crandall last week and encouragement about bringing on guests more frequently. Just want to reiterate that that's our plan and we're working on a lineup for upcoming shows. 
We also want to remind you that Airlines Confidential is made possible with the support from our sponsors, including the finance and investment banking firm Seabury Capital. With a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services, and technologies, their widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital.com. Ben, it's time for listener questions. And our first question is from Ryan. Ryan says he's from the San Joaquin Valley. Ryan, I'm from Fresno. The San Joaquin Valley is 200 miles long, so I don't know where you are exactly, and I'm not going to try to guess, but we appreciate your writing in. And it's timely as it's connected to our earlier discussion. Ryan writes, Chris and Ben, with recent news of two ultra-low-cost carrier filings for IPOs, from an economic standpoint, what is the major thrust of a privately-owned company wanting to go public? Is it to accumulate as much capital as possible to buy planes and take over the world? Or is it more of the equity fund owner's desire to cash out, or maybe both? Lastly, are these IPOs a real threat to the competition, or do they just make it easier for mergers and acquisitions down the road? P.S. Love the show. Ben? Well, it's a great question, Chris. And different owners have different motivations, right? In the case of both Frontier and Sun Country, they're privately held. Frontier by Indigo Partners, which is a group that has a good track record of owning low-cost carriers and bringing them public. And it's Apollo with uh, Sun Country, and they also have a an enormously great track record investing in lots of companies. So in both cases, they're looking to do both of the things that you say, which is they clearly the private owners want to take some money off the table, if you will. I don't think in either case, the current private owners will completely sell their stakes. They'll still be involved in these airlines. But in the process, since they own all of those two companies today, whether it's Indigo or Apollo, they can monetize some of their investment while still being able to sort of have a seat at the table for how that company grows and moves going forward. So it's a, it de-risks them in a sense. And I think that's really good for them. In some cases, you could have private owners who really just want to use it just to cash out. I don't think that's the case in either of these two things here. And in both cases, they're both you know high growth airlines. So it probably will help both companies to improve their working capital, give them more flexibility to buy more airplanes, grow more quickly, and things like that, which again, is going to make their shareholders more money over time, which is why they'd want to do this. So it's a good it's a good structure for a privately held company. It adds complications. There are nice things about being private. You don't have to report your financials every quarter to the world. Your competitors don't always know what you're doing because you don't report that. And there's a lot of oversight that happens when you're a public company. But the trade-off is you get that economic flexibility that it can bring. And that that's really, really good. In terms of them being real threats to competition, I think they are. I mean, low-cost carriers discipline all airlines. Even at the even at the height of when people really hated Spirit, and they don't hate Spirit as much anymore, but <laughs> at the time when people hated it, what I used to say, well, even if you don't fly us, you should thank us for 
you know, keeping the rest of the industry's fares in check. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that when you have four airlines in the U.S. that at least pre-COVID were carrying 80% of all the travelers, it's airlines like Frontier and Sun Country and the already public spirit and Allegiant and JetBlue that sort of that sort of keep things honest for the industry in a sense. So I think it is good for competition. I'm a fan of competition, and I think it gives customers more choices, and that's really good. The IPOs themselves, I don't think, change the balance that much. I don't think Frontier or Sun Country are going to do something uniquely different because they're public companies. They're just going to be in a little different structure. So they were fast growing companies before, they'll still be fast growing. They were low price tickets, they're still going to be low price tickets. What it does, he mentions, does it make it easier to form mergers and acquisitions down the road? It might, but I'm not sure that on its own is a, that's not one of the reasons either of these companies did that either. But it, it that's probably an an unintended consequence that it might make a merger and acquisition of either of these companies with them as a buyer or a seller down the road a little more easier. Having worked for both privately held and publicly held companies and companies who have been privately held and then public and, and back and forth, and I, I know you have too, while there's certainly a, a number of pressures that come with being publicly traded, a privately held company isn't without scrutiny. <laughs> Sometimes I think it feels... Like it's more heavily scrutinized by the private ownership, but uh, you know both come with responsibilities and different pressures. But you know, I think there is an element of confidence in the outlook of the business that provides kind of a halo across the industry at this critical time. Okay, so uh, as we've worked through a, our backlog of questions, this question also fits very nicely with this broader conversation, and it's from Joao, all the way from Italy. Hi, Ben and Chris. I'm a Brazilian student majoring in economics and management at Unici in Siena, Italy. My dream is to be an airline executive in the future. Just want to ask you to talk about Allegiant's Great Rebound, as well as David Nealman's startup Breeze, which seemingly has pretty much the same business model as Allegiant, but better and even leaner. Honestly, it looks always silly to me how Allegiant can be so overlooked. Their disruption potential is still immense. Do you agree? Ben? Well, I'm a fan of Allegiant's business model, and I agree that they are often overlooked, but their disruption potential, I'm not sure, is immense. They choose to fly their airplanes in places most other airlines aren't flying. So while they've created a terrific business and a business that has rebounded quite quickly through COVID, I'm not sure they're disrupting as much as an airline like a Frontier or a JetBlue that is flying right against the big airlines in the big markets and lowering prices there. When when Allegiant has a low price from Lubbock to Las Vegas or from Spokane to Las Vegas or from Elmira, New York to Orlando, they're doing a great thing for the people in those smaller cities to be able to get to a great destination point. But they're not really affecting industry pricing as much as when JetBlue flies New York to the Caribbean or Spirit flies Dallas to the West Coast or Frontier flies out of Denver against United. So I think disruption's an interesting word. I think it could be if they decided to go head to head with others, but they don't. But I do love that model. And I think that I agree that they're overlooked a lot. Now, 
like David Neoman, Allegiance chairman Maury Gallagher has been around a real long time. And so they both know what they're doing. I said just a little earlier that I wouldn't bet against David Neoman, and I think he is great at what he's done. I'm not sure Breeze is a copy of the Allegiant model in the sense that one of the things that has made Allegiant work is they don't pay a lot for their airplanes generally that allows them to fly less than day of week service and not fly when the plane's not going to be full. Breeze is going to have brand new airplanes. And while I'm sure David Nealman got a good price for those airplanes, I bet he's paying a lot more than Allegiant pays for their airplanes. So while he might be like Allegiant in terms of trying to serve more alternative spots and fly where big airlines don't fly, I'm not sure it's going to be as sparse uh, every couple days a week kind of service as Allegiant is. But I may have that wrong too. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, no, I mean... Look, I remember Maury Gallagher back in the 80s when I worked on Capitol Hill and his old West Air was providing essential air service up and down the San Joaquin Valley where my boss uh, represented flying Cessnas and de Havilland's. And, and, you know, he's like you said, he's been around a long time. He's a smart guy. He knows how to work the business and work the industry. But they're somewhat different approaches between Breeze and Allegiant. You know, I think David Nealman has a history of doing little extra touches on customer service that I don't think is a priority for the Allegiant service. And I think they willingly say that. They're there to provide the lowest cost service point to point on a semi-regular basis, certainly not daily in, in underserved markets. And that's their job, to fly safely in those markets. I think David will take a somewhat different approach. But they're both fixated on the bottom line. They know how to run a low-cost airline. And as you've said many times on this podcast, that's who's going to win right now with regard to being able to be nimble, uh, to move around assets, to secure assets at a low cost, and to uh, take advantage of the opportunities. This is Airlines Confidential. Finer Wine is next. But first, we want to thank our friends at TA Connections. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections, paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. For crew logistics, accommodations, crew management, and corporate lodging, get in touch with TA Connections today. Learn more at taconnections.com. That's taconnections.com. TA Connections, a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Chris, in an attempt at being impartial, I'm going to just read this finer wine and let you respond. It's from the mysterious initial I, no first name and certainly not me, in Hoxton, <laughs> Georgia. I signed up for the $9 Fare Club, that's on Spirit, in November 2019 without reading the policy. I ended up not using it in 2019, could not fly most of 2020 anyway. I was charged for automatic renewal in November 2020. I canceled the same day the charge went to my credit card. Now I paid for a year I will never be able to use. Their policy is no cancellation, no refund. I cannot even reinstate the current year that was canceled. I will never fly Spirit again, even if I have to pay double the price on another airline. Chris? So first to clarify to our listeners, she is referring to the Spirit Airlines $9 Fare Club, which has an annual membership fee that then gives you special access 
to fares and discounts, kind of like a Costco membership. But I don't think there are many $9 fares anymore, but the name kind of stuck. Second, I have a feeling that the reason it's called Spirit Airlines is because the ghost of Ben Baldanza still is hanging around there because this, <laughs> I guess, is an over overhang from, from when you were there. But let me just say, and I do so with some gentle sarcasm meant in a friendly way, that there are only 1,377 people in Houston, Georgia. So I, if we really wanted to find you, we probably could, but we're going to respect your desire to remain anonymous. But this is unfortunately a wine. Uh, you gave it up from the first sentence when you said you signed up without reading the policy terms and conditions. We've talked about this before. It's up to the airline to make rules and terms very clear and easily understood, and then to deliver on its customer policies and commitments. And it's up to consumers to read the fine print. Sometimes it's not even fine print, it's right under your nose in legible type. I don't mean to pick on I, but this is a no for me, dog. It's a wine. Ben, before we sign off, I want to remind our listeners that we love your feedback, comments, or questions. Remember, we have a new phone number, which is 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the links to contact us. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and we're also available via Amazon Alexa and Google Assist. Keep it clean. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. As we close, I'm going to give my shout out of the week to Boeing, which in February posted its first net increase in orders over cancellations since November 2019. They still got a long road ahead of them, but good to see they're on the road and not in the ditch. That's a good shout out, Chris. And um, mine's going to be fairly anticlimactic after this podcast is my shout out is wants to go to David Nealman, actually. It's hard to start a new airline. It's hard to get all the paperwork with the FAA and the DOT. It's hard to find a market that maybe hasn't been served yet and figure out how you're going to compete in a very competitive market. And it's just hard to get all that done. And to get all that done while the industry's on its back is really quite an amazing feat. So to get that approval from the DOT, Again, it's so odd, just like the IPOs happening, but to not just bring a company public, but start a new airline with new capacity, that's a real, real feat. And the jury will be out to see how nice his airline is. I'm guessing it will be, right? And uh, and how successful it is. But just for the act of getting that approved, that deserves a shout out. That's a good one. Good luck to uh, David Nealman and all of his team, as well as the Frontier and Sun Country teams as they go forward with their IPOs. Until next week, I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. And with my own Alexa, I asked my son to go and say, hey, ask it to play the Airlines Confidential podcast. And he did. And it was just really cool doing it that way. (laughs) This has been Airlines Confidential. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.